Uh, of course, we want to know that all students are thriving, that all students are growing and learning, but this obsession with everybody needs to learn the same things strikes me as much more dangerous than anything else. We know how to measure the things on the bottom. We don't know how to measure the things on the top. So because we don't know how to measure them, we don't do them because we are judged by people outside of us on the things that we can measure easily. Um, there's a set of presuppositions here that the dominant culture that pro provided, that designed and provided these standards knows what every kid in the world needs to know. Standards have been used, are used, potentially were uh, designed as a control mechanism. Hello and welcome to the Coconut Thinking Podcast. I'm your host, Benjamin Freud, and today we have two guests, Jennifer DeKlein and Kapona Chioti. They are the co-authors of the book, The Landscape Model of Learning, Designing Student-Centered Experiences for Cognitive and Cultural Inclusion, which came out in May. Jennifer taught college and high school English and Spanish for 19 years, including five years in Central America and 11 years in an all-girls education institution. And in 2010, Jennifer left teaching to begin Principled Learning Strategies, which provides professional development to support authentic student-driven global learning experiences in schools. She has a broad background in global education and partnership development, student-driven curricular strategies, inclusivity, and experiential inquiry-driven learning. And her first book is called The Global Education Guidebook. Capono has worked internationally in educational change organizations, leading the work of deeper learning and place and culture-based pedagogy. In these roles, he has trained teachers in over 100 schools and school districts over four continents, impacting hundreds of thousands of students. Capono spent also 15 years as national faculty for the National Association of Independent Schools in diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice, facilitating national and international learning experiences. And as a curriculum writer, he has authored multiple curricula for federal and nonprofit programs. And his work has significantly contributed to the organizations What School Could Be, the Buck Institute, Ed Leader 21, the Pacific American Foundation, and many others. This is a particularly rich and interesting conversation for me, not just because there are two, I guess, for the first time in the Coconut Thinking podcast history, but also and especially because it brushes up with critical pedagogy, radical pedagogy, and some questions around systems and what we have today in schools and within the greater social structure that are oppressive, perhaps, or at least domineering, and specifically in reference to some of the work of Paulo Freire. Now, I don't want to scare you off, but nevertheless, there is quite a bit of food for thought that I think shakes things up a little bit and takes us away from some of the conversations that are often heard, which I think uh, can never be a bad thing. Check us out on our website, www.coconut-thinking.design. And of course, our articles are on Intrepid Ed, www.intrepidednews.com. Again, the website for Coconut Thinking is www.coconut-thinking.design. We look forward to your thoughts, and I will leave space to my conversation with Jennifer and Capona. Well, hello. I would like to welcome uh, Jennifer and Capona to the first ever episode of the Coconut Thinking Podcast, where we have two guests. So I'm very excited about this uh, this new episode, this new dawn in, in the Coconut Thinking, and, and um, long may it continue, and I hope you start a tradition. I'm going to ask you 
both the same question or one question and uh, you both can uh, answer it in, in your own ways. And it's deliberately left open, which is who are you and what story do you want to tell? Jennifer? Thank you for the question. I love that it's so open-ended too. So who am I? I'm Jennifer Klein. Um, I am uh, a career educator, a lifelong educator, and also a writer. Um, and I think being a writer and an author, that really was born actually even before my my passion for education. It was just that the intersection of my love of writing and my love for education uh, became my 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 path. Um, I'm actually the product of experiential education. Um, and so at, at early forms in the United States of alternative public education in particular. And so I'm, um, you know, a lot of what I bring to my work comes from my own childhood, comes from my sense of what works well for kids um, um, of a variety of kinds of kids, right? Those, those sorts of inclusive strategies and, and active strategies that, that put us in the center as, as protagonists and as, as real owners of our own learning experience. So in terms of, I mean, who I am is a young person, you know, somebody who grew up in the United States. Uh, I was um, uh, born outside of Philadelphia, uh, spent most of my informative years in Colorado, um, went to Bard College, which was an extraordinary experience. I, I really was looking for schools that would um, honor who I am um, and the way I think. I think in a lot of ways, um, if I had been born in a later time, I would have described myself as um, neuroatypical, perhaps. Uh, that's a term that's a little bit, you know, wasn't in use uh, when I was growing up. Um, but I was just that kid who always thought of a 15 answers other than the one the teacher was thinking of or the test was looking for. So I've always been interested in um, finding a pathway for education. And this would be the story that I want to tell really is what does education look like for the kid who doesn't um, always have the right answer, but who has a different sort of sense of what a right answer might be. Um, and what does it look like to really foster that different thinking? Because I believe very strongly that um, that, that kind of innovative outside the box thinking is the only thing that can, can really save humanity and the, and the future of the world. We, we need new solutions. We need new relationships. We need new ways of looking at ourselves in relation to the planet. Um, and so I really believe in an education that fosters that kind of thinking um, um, and that um, that really honors the way kids see the world and, and what they think could could fix our, our gravest uh, challenges. Hey, Capone, tell us a little bit about yourself. Who are you and what story would you like to tell? Uh, I appreciate that question as well, Benjamin. It's uh, it's interesting. I got to hear Jennifer uh, uh, share her answer and, you know, maybe a little bit more think time than she had for that. Um, so uh, I, I guess if I think back how I would have answered that question and how that question, how the answer to that question would have changed over time, um, I, 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 I'd, similar to Jennifer, uh, who I am now is very much grounded in who I was as a learner and a student. We both had very uh, unique and special and very happy uh, educational experiences, at least for most of my educational experience. Uh, if you asked me uh, in elementary school, I would have told you I was a student. Uh, if you asked me as a 20-something-year-old, I would have told you I was an educator and a outrigger canoe paddling coach. Uh, if you asked me as a 30-something-year-old, I would have told you I'm an educator and a musician. And now um, I would say I'm an educator and a parent and husband. 
which uh, if you kind of look back, if I look back on it, then the, the strand that flows through the whole thing is uh, a learner and an educator. Uh, and that's uh, it's special to me. My, uh, I, I, I've come from a long line of educators. I'm, I'm uh, part uh, native Hawaiian. And so tracing back what genealogy is important to me. Um, that's not the only reason that's important to me, but that makes it uh, even more special and important to me. Um, and we have a, I have a long uh, genealog genealogical line of education uh, in the family through my uh, both of my parents. Um, as an educator, then who am I as an educator? Um, I am a uh, old school Deweyan social constructivist progressive educator. Uh, and a lot of that luckily flows into a lot of the new stuff that's uh, happening now. Uh, and, and I think that um, a lot of the things happening in education today, um, things that maybe uh, a decade ago we were calling 21st century learning, um, four C's, five C's, eight C's, whatever you want to alliterate, um, deeper learning, uh, all of those frameworks, uh, so much of that um, resonates with me as an educator, not because of the newness of it or the labels, but because, like Jennifer said, the experiences we're able to have uh, as learners ourselves. I um, So the story I'll tell. Um, I was able to have a very, um, everything I am as an educator, I would say, you know, uh, the, the cliche of everything, you know, you learn in kindergarten. Um, I would say uh, most of what I am as an educator, I learned in kindergarten. I had the good fortune of going to a uh, amazing, tiny little progressive ed school in Hawaii, um, the happiest place on earth, uh, where we did not understand as students why in the movies, uh, kids were trying to cut school. Uh, it was incomprehensible why no one would, people didn't want to be at school. Um, and I quickly learned why as I went into uh, Uber College Prep, um, Mr. Barack um, uh, Obama's alma mater school, uh, get you ready for the big leagues and uh, quickly saw the other side of education. Grateful, super grateful for that education. Um, but it was such a huge contrast. And I think I was lucky in having majorly contrasting experiences through elementary and then this college prep experience and then into college at Evergreen State College in Washington, which is a super hippie school with kids uh, chaining themselves to uh, pine trees so they don't get cut down. Um, and then straight from there into a teaching experience that was grounded in Ted Sizer's Coalition of Essential Schools work. So this uh, series of events and contrasts that I think shaped me as who I am as, as I would define as an educator. Excellent. Thank you. And what I noticed is that both of you told the story, stories of your own lives and, and how you've gone through different phases. And so the question I'll ask you about how do you define learning will probably have been answered differently along some of these phases. So today on um, August 25th, I'll ask you this question. In this moment, how do you define learning? I think this is a great question and, and a challenging one as well, um, you know, because I think there are so many different ways we can view that idea of learning. I, for me, growing up in my early years, learning was very much about experience and experiment, you know, um, we in a in what really were constructivist uh, types of experience, you know, uh, designs in these schools. Um, 
that I attended, I think, you know, learning was anything from figuring out in a swimming pool, in a swimming pool in Evergreen, Colorado, how to flip a canoe back over when it had um, gone under to being in that same canoe in the Okefenokee swamp and actually having to figure out how to get myself away from the, you know, the alligators uh, that I think there were a lot of um, real world applications throughout my, my early childhood where we were really out doing um, learning, um, doing learning meaning it wasn't happening inside the classroom in a vacuum, but it was happening out in the world in engagement. Um, I was very much a globally educated kid as well. Um, my first global experiences occurred when I was 13, 14 years old. Um, uh, and through school, I had the opportunity to attempt to uh, live and work in Israel, Palestine for six months when I was a teenager uh, in the first half of my senior year and travel around Europe. And that was part of my learning experience. So, um, Global education has changed, certainly, right? The way that we conceived of uh, learning about or from and with the world um, when I was a teenager didn't include the technologies, right? It, it was either physical travel or, or physical mail <laughs> that allowed you uh, to make those connections. So I think that's probably one of the things that's the, evolved the most for me is how I see global learning. My first book, the Global Education Guidebook, was designed for teachers to find ways to connect their classrooms with the world and to build really equitable um, uh, asset-based relationships with other, um, with other young people, with other schools, with experts in the world who could really inform students' worldview. Um, and so, you know, over the years, I think it's evolved a lot. In the new work that Capono and I are doing, this idea of learning is, is a much more personal frame. Um, it, it, the idea in the landscape model of learning is that we're really trying to frame learning as a, um, a deeply immersive, deeply personal journey. Um, we're trying to really uh, provide a ways for teachers to consider learning to be slightly different on a different pathway for individual students. Um, and a lot of this comes from early conversations that Capona and I had about this word access. Um, we were hearing the word access in reference to, to education way more often than we were comfortable with, whether that was talking about special education students having access to learning because they were in the room or uh, students in different parts of the world having access to a schoolhouse to be able to learn. Um, but what was concerning both of us was this feeling that access was such a low standard to shoot for, right? I mean, it's obviously an, an it's a necessary first step, right? If you don't have access, then you don't you don't have a starting place. But to suggest that access was the goal seemed very disappointing. And I think one of the things that we came to was that success was how we wanted to define learning, and that success would actually be different for every child to some degree. Now, all of this flies in the face of our standardized systems, right? <laughs> it's, uh, and that's something that I uh, really focused on in the article that got your attention, um, was this idea that we really need to start defining success on a more local basis um, and really understand who our kids are and the trajectories that they and their families aspire to in order to be able to define what successful learners look like. Um, so I think that sense of variety and that sense of the personal journey is really the heart of how I see learning now uh, very clearly as uh, you know as success in the terms 
of the individual, right? So if I want to be a rock star, then success looks one way. And if I want to be an engineer, success looks differently. Um, and that jagged profile in my education, all the, the, the opportunity to focus on the things I care about and are good at and am good at um, is, is probably a, a central through line for that work. Um, but for me, that's really what it's about. I mean, learning happens every minute of, of our lives, right? Um, and I we use, made use of the ideas of the authors Sarah Lewis, who talks about learning as working toward a horizon. Um, she says that success is actually just a fixed point, like a, an event-based success, um, but that mastery is something that we work on our whole lives as though we're moving toward a horizon that's constantly receding as we move toward it. Um, um, like you would see on the salt flats, for example, right? Or on the horizon in the ocean. Um, and so, the idea being that, you know, this is a lifelong pursuit. We're learners until the moment we're not alive anymore, uh, in my opinion. That idea, I'm, I'm glad you brought up, um, Sarah, and this idea of the, of the, the horizon. Um, it, it is key to how I think about this as a journey. So um, I guess I would summarize what is learning in one very simple word, which is growth. For me, learning is growth. Um, I'll, I'll kind of give you a contrasting piece for that. Um, in, in one of my roles as executive director of the educational transformation nonprofit, What School Could Be, um, we're developing some micro-credentials. Uh, we've developed micro-credentials. And in you know, spending a year developing these micro-credentials, um, we did a lot of research into what would what makes a good micro-credential. What is, what is a micro-credential versus something else? Um, and the standard definition that most people are using for micro-credentials uh, there's nothing wrong with it. Uh, it is something, but it, it just it, it's not necessarily um, learning. What micro credentials uh, mean typically for most organizations is uh, an affirmation or a, a validation uh, that you you know something. Uh, you can come in knowing that thing. Uh, you could leave knowing that thing, but you get the micro credential when you know that thing. Um, and so what we're doing with our micro-credentials certainly is that there's an affirmation of knowing, being able to do, understanding uh, that thing or those things. Um, but no matter where you are on that journey, what we aspire to do in creating what school could be micro-credentials is ensure that wherever you are, you are journeying forward and growing. So I'll come back to the kind of two words, growth. Uh, I would define learning as growth. Growth is sometimes... Uh, beautiful and easy and nice and happy and sometimes painful and uh, in the wrong direction uh, or or in a right direction that doesn't happen to feel really good. Uh, and learning is also a journey. The, the landscape that Jennifer was talking about uh, that is the metaphor uh, for the landscape model of learning book uh, is really about a journey. It's about uh, starting somewhere, wherever you are as a, as a learner and progressing towards this infinite horizon. Um, sometimes into a bog, sometimes over a hill, metaphorically. Uh, sometimes you stagnate for a little while on a plateau, um, but learning happens when you're journeying forward. So there's a lot of threads here to pick up. And one of them that I want to uh, bring up that, that you kind of hinted at, but didn't necessarily go deeply into is, is this idea of place-based. And I know that was in the article. So you talk a lot about putting you know, the, the, the kid at the center, also talk about individual journeys. What about this idea of context, this idea of place, what is the relationship between the individual journey of a learner, the individual journey of a community, and the context? And, and how does that all work together since we're not in isolation? 
I, I think it's a wonderful question. I, I, you know, from my perspective, a lot of what we're doing wrong right now is over legislating education from the top, um, from people who aren't necessarily educators, but more importantly, who are not actually in the classroom with the kids that that who are being served by a given policy. And so I think what we, the way that I frame this idea of place-based learning or, or the individual, the community, the collective, um, is this idea of starting from the most local place possible, right? Um, with teachers who know the kids' communities, with teachers who, if they don't know the kids' communities, have, have found ways to learn as much as they can about these young people and about their backgrounds and about what their aspirations are in their, in their community and culture. Um, not to control uh, who they are and where they're going, but to really open up possibilities for local action. And I think, you know, one of the one of the stories we tell in the book, for example, is this story of how often young um, college graduates are placed as teachers in communities they have no knowledge of, right? Um, there are programs, federal programs, I think all over the world, actually, right? That you know, take these great graduates and place them in rural schools or in city schools that are less served um, by high quality teachers. And that's not a bad thing necessarily, but very often these young graduates go in thinking that their goal is to, to help kids get out of the neighborhood, right? Um, to help them make something of themselves. And, and that sense of success means that they would be going elsewhere, <laughs> right? Um, and and, and yet, if you were to ask any of their families, the aspirations are the pure opposite and, and frankly would be the pure opposite for most of those kids, too. They have a deep sense of place. They have a deep sense of community as individuals, and they want to be able to do something for that community, right? So it's not go off and become the best doctor in the world over on in that country, right, or in that part of the world, um, but to really think about how you can contribute to to your own community right here at home. I, I think that's when we think about equity in education and we think about what it really looks like to improve our communities, I think it would be we would be much better served by by young people from those communities coming up with the solutions um, necessary to improve conditions rather than it being that outsider sort of colonial mindset of the big guy gets to decide um, what change looks like or what improvement looks like. Um, so I, I might be going in a few different tangents here, but I think for me, the this idea of the um, the individual within community, within this broader global context or local context. I mean, I think I certainly want kids to grow up feeling connected to things that are happening in other parts of the world. But I also want to imagine them growing up feeling deeply honored for who they are and their and the origins that they come from and to be surrounded by educators who who focus most on and leverage their talents and their interests and their passions rather than viewing them always through a sort of deficit lens of I've got to catch you up because you're from the inner city or here are the million things that you're not good at that we've got to get you good at. Um, what might it look like to really on a local level um, change those paradigms? I think it's about time um, that we do so. I think about place in two ways. So um, as a native Hawaiian, um, I think about place uh, a lot because place-based education is really important. And in a Hawaiian context, um, one of the, the, the terms that has uh, caught on recently that has a lot of, uh, I, I think the best meaning in Hawaii right now is aina-based education. Aina uh, being directly translated as land, 
uh, but being so much more than land. Um, there's an emotional connection, a spiritual connection. I know it doesn't have to be soil. It could be ocean. It could actually be sky as well. Uh, but is, it, it is uh, that, that space in which uh, we find existence and home. Um, and Aina-based education uh, is, very, is, is a thing in itself. It, it, it leverages the context of place to support learning or growth, right? For the last question. Um, and so if I think about place-based education, um, I think about Aina education, Aina-based education. Uh, and my definition of that would be that we, we, we thoughtfully and purposefully um, partner with, leverage maybe in a Western term, partner with maybe is a better way to translate it from a native Hawaiian term, uh, the environment that we're in, the environment being the physical environment, but as, as you said, Benjamin, also the people in that environment, our community, um, doesn't need to be the indigenous community, but the, everybody we interact with, the businesses, the human beings, the school, the teacher, our fellow classmates, um, and, and through those purposeful interactions, it facilitates growth, it facilitates learning. I think a, a slightly different, but definitely overlapped frame uh, of of the of place and and um, thinking about context, you used the word context earlier. Uh, is kind of how we framed it in the landscape model of learning. So in the landscape model of learning, we talk about first um, understanding the ecosystem, and that there's this myth uh, that's prevalent in education of students being an empty vessel or a blank slate, a tableau rasa, um, and that's certainly a myth that we all bring with us as learners uh, background information. We bring family, we bring our gender, we bring um, our race and our ethnicity, we bring our religion, we bring uh, all of these different identifiers. That's what I bring. Um, other students in the same learning environment bring uh, their versions of those things. This teacher brings their version of those things. And that's all in the context of a community. And that, um, again, when we are purposeful about understanding those things, not being paralyzed by the, 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 the depth of information that's there, but purposefully uh, going about it, understanding the information that presents itself to us and looking for certain um, other clues for identifiers that we can then navigate the landscape better. Um, and it's actually a, a necessary starting point to know those things uh, to ensure that learning happens at its best. Actually, recently we had someone from the Department of Education in Hawaii so this is something that's very fresh uh, on our minds. Um, the idea that the identity, who we are, what we bring, uh, is, is the starting point. And that doesn't necessarily have to be who we are, what we bring as an individual. Again, community, however that's defined. And that could be many different places. Even our relationship with nature, or should I say our relationship as part of nature. And, and I guess the question I have here, and, and it spins off a little bit towards the micro-credentials, if we're all going to think about context and individual journeys or maybe community journeys, at the same time, and this is something that, that often comes up, we have these, this world of micro-credentialing, which is really just a snapshot in time or, I don't know, maybe a, a, a part at this moment you were able to know. And then assuming that uh, the micro-credential says that it would be valid forever, that, that you don't forget what you know and when you had the photo uh, taken uh, of, of what you know. How do we navigate these individual stories with the need to document, like micro-credentials, with this need to have a, a language that everybody can understand without having to sift through the stories. How do we resolve that tension? Because it's a realistic tension, and, and I'll end by, by saying this, that the documentation isn't a kid problem, it's an adult problem, but the adults are the ones who make the policy. So, so where do we go from here? 
Well, I'm going to start by saying the first time I ever received a letter or number grade for my work was college. And I am so deeply, deeply grateful that I kind of can't even put it into words, right? Um, Because learning was for learning's sake, right? And actually, the documentation was a kid problem. We were we were in charge of our own documentation. My transcripts were 50 pages of my reflections on all of my different major learning experiences. What my what the founder of the school, Arnie Langberg, and my principal um, described as a living transcript that was constantly evolving and changing during the course of my education. Um, so. I actually kind of wish we would let go of some. This is coming from my side, and then I think Capona will offer something more connected to the micro-credentials as well. But um, from my perspective, I think standards have done more harm than good. I think this idea of, of, of normalizing or standardizing or, forgive me for getting political, uh, colonizing education around the world is a mistake. And I think that it it creates the same effect on a, on a broad scale as... Um, as grades can create on, on a local scale for kids too, right? It creates that sense that some countries or places are stuck and not moving forward simply because they're doing something different. <laughs> um, and uh, because by comparison to other nature nations on the basis of these specific standards, they're not where they're supposed to be. You know, we use this, um, the landscape model is a the landscape is a metaphor meant to help us counter the metaphor of the racetrack, right? That feeling of everybody's lined up in the same starting place. Everybody's trying to get to the same ending place. Some people get there quickly. Some people never get there, right? And we we know that there are students in our schools who spend their entire education feeling stuck and behind and unvalued um, for what they are good at um, because simply because they're not good at the things that the standards suggest matter. Um, so I would go so far as to say, I think we've made a real mistake there. And I think that humans are non-standard. Of course, we want to know that all students are thriving, that all students are growing and learning. But this obsession with everybody needs to learn the same things strikes me as much more dangerous than anything else. So, so my answer would be, let's get rid of some of that. Let's undo some of those trappings that tie the hands of teachers who know perfectly well what the kids in their environment need um, and don't need to be told by government what, what, what those things are. I'll, I'll start with the, if we had infinite time answer to that, and then come back to Jennifer's point. If I don't come back to Jennifer's point, here's me coming back, back to her point that we need to get rid of some of these things and lighten the load. Um, I, I had a, a, a similar but different, different timed experience to Jennifer. I had uh, grades and uh, adults tracking that for me with numbers and letters uh, from middle school. I didn't get all the way to university. But then when I went to college, I had this amazing college experience of no letter grades, which blows people's minds that those college exists, right? And my college transcript is about, you know, uh, two inches thick uh, of narratives and my and my self-reflection. So uh, having had multiple different experiences of tracking my own progress, having other people track my progress, having it be uh, qualitative and quantitative, I, I think about it in this way now. I think about uh, five uh, types or depths or, 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 or uh, levels of learning that one's not better than the other, but there's certainly different levels of complexity. Um, so I think that there's this, this bottom level of, of content, right? We know how to measure content. You know it, you don't know it. We as teachers can create our own assessments for content. Um, 
a more complex in content would be would be skills, skills at a discipline specific level um, that you can do the algorithm, uh, that you know the grammar and can apply the grammar, uh, that you can um, play the saxophone. Um, and then more complex than that would be a conceptual knowledge of the world. For example, um, interdependence. Uh, there's a content definition of interdependence as in a dictionary, but a conceptual understanding of interdependence might mean something along the lines of, I understand interdependence in a coral reef, and I can take that understanding and apply it and, and transfer it to in, what interdependence might mean in a forest or a community. And then I think even more complex to that, we have what, you know, the four C's, 21st century skills, soft skills, uh, traits of learning, things like creativity um, and uh, uh, creative, uh, uh, critical thinking. So I think that, like I said earlier, we as individual educators, we can figure out how to assess, measure, uh, give a number to content knowledge. I think that we're given tools because it's slightly more complex uh, by assessment companies to uh, assess skills in a discipline. Um, I think that there's some new frontier work that's you know decades old, but still feeling like the new frontier around conceptual knowledge, uh, ways for students to show you that they understand in ways that aren't easily capturable into a number or a letter, performance tasks, authentic assessments, um, culminating assessments for project-based learning, uh, uh, defensive learning. Um, and then I think the most complicated thing would be the, these traits of learning, right? And, and you see tons of schools getting into portrait of graduates and then getting stuck on, we need a rubric for creativity. Um, and there's not really a measure for that right now. Um, with that hierarchy, what I, you know, if there was infinite time, I would say there is room to do some measurement of content, right? Like I think learning, uh, I, I was a content phobic when I first got on this progressive ed journey. I'm a process person. Um, and I was like content schmontent. It's content is ubiquitous. It's on Google. Don't worry about it. Kids can find it. Um, Maybe not when I first came on this progressive journey. Google didn't even exist then. But I've said that many times, right? It's on Google. It's not important. Well, it, it, it isn't important as something that needs to be stuffed in the brain and kept there. But it is important, like Lego blocks are important to build a Lego Death Star or a Lego, um, you know, what a castle or whatever it is. You need those little chunks of Lego to build something amazing. It would be, it would be horribly boring if all you did was categorize and stack four by four red Lego block, we need to build something with it, right? So there's there's a need for content knowledge. There's a need for skills. There's a need for conceptual knowledge. And certainly we know there's a need for critical thinking, creativity, collaboration, uh, being a cosmopolitan, all these, all these larger traits of learning. Um, and they're all necessary. The issue with schools, and you're saying it's an adult problem, is we know how to measure the things on the bottom. We don't know how to measure the things on the top. So because we don't know how to measure them, we don't do them because we are judged by people outside of us on the things that we can measure easily. Now, I say we don't know how to measure them. There are ways to measure them. They're just more complex. They're more costly. They take more time. They take more skill. Um, and so we, um, we pander and do things to the lowest common denominator based on people outside of education who want to report on the value of their money because they don't have the time to read through my 50-page um, Evergreen State College transcript or sit with Jennifer to find out what she really learned when she flipped the canoe in the uh, Okefenokee swamp. And of course, this idea of measure, this idea, you know, the root word of measure being to limit, uh, also this idea of measurement being 
dependent on the tools that we use to measure, and, and that's the numbers that we get. And, and I guess I want to go back to this idea of measurement in that concept of, well, it depends on the tools they use to measure, but really also in terms of the, the, the colonization of what this means, how standards are colonizing. And going back to this idea of content, I'm a historian. I, I know one bazillionth of everything there is about history, even my area of special specialty. So the content itself doesn't matter in the sense of like a specific content. It's, it's, it's just knowing some content to help you in, in, your, in, your, uh, in your analysis and, and, and whatnot. But I guess I, I want to go into how standards are part of this colonization, how they reinforce a dominant narrative, how they limit our thinking by putting us in, in these boxes rather than allow us to, to, to explore and, and, and become who we are. Could you just go a little bit into that, Ed, what, what thoughts you might have? Sure. I mean, I think on the first level, what we're talking about is that these standards have been developed by a small set of people and are now being applied across the world, right? And so this, this idea that any, any set of people know what everyone in the world needs to know and know how to do uh, is obviously pretty absurd at, on, uh, at, on face value. I, I, but I think, too, it has a very dangerous potential um, and has already had a very dangerous impact on cultures around the world. Um, there's a set of presuppositions here that the dominant culture that pro provided, that designed and provided these standards knows what every kid in the world needs to know. Um, but as Capono was saying, you know, students are not, young people are not a tabula rasa. Wherever they're growing up, there's local knowledge that matters, right? So um, Yang Zhao uses the example all the time of, you know, he was a failure at being a rice farmer. <laughs> Right. Um, in that context, his skill set didn't fit. When he moved into another context, that skill set did fit. Right. So this um, this idea of of everybody needs to know the same thing actually strikes me as that one of the most dangerous things to cultivating talent and innovation um, that we have. Right. Uh, it all it goes back to writers like Paulo Freire who talked about you know who gets to decide what's being learned, um, and I personally would would encourage. A, a shift toward the student at the center of all of this, right? The student is the one who needs to be able to define, well, if this is the horizon I'm working toward, um, and this is what my, you know, what I want to be able to achieve in my life, then here are the pathways that I need to walk or to go along in my learning that will allow me to, to get there, right? Um, I, I really do, I, I don't think it's wrong to have expectations for education. I don't think it's wrong to expect um, educators and their students to document their process and their learning. And I think it's wonderful when young people can articulate their own growth and their own challenges and can say, you know, this last trimester, I got really good at X, Y, and Z, but I still really have to work on A, B, and C because I'm noticing that those, those elements are really tripping me up. I think that those kinds of empowered uh, student protagonists in the learning experience, um, I think that's what we're shooting for. So, so it's not that we should take away evaluation, but I do think, I think systems like PISA exams, I think all of these comparative systems, um, uh, as well as national systems, every country that I've lived in in the world has something like it. Um, and I think it's all based on a dominant theory that's often very far, <laughs> that often has its origins very far from the schoolhouse the teacher is working in. And I think we really have to 
make adjustments or at the very least have the right to look at those standards and say, here are the sets that are relevant for my context. And here are the, the, the sets that frankly could actually crush potential innovation and improvement in our own community. I would answer this question in two ways. I would answer it in a, a way that would be helpful to teachers who are working in a system in which standards are, are a part of their accountability factor, somebody who uh, has to use them, somebody who, who could use them in a positive way. And then I have a, a much more political answer that um, I typically save uh, for my own brain uh, and talking to Jennifer, but I'll share it uh, quite broadly here. Um, talking with teachers in school systems that are using standards. Um, standards are horrible and they're also not. Um, the fact that standards exist is not horrible. They have been uh, very dangerously um, and damagingly uh, implemented. The, 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 the falsity that every student should learn the same thing in the same way at the same time is truly ludicrous, right? We know that that's like, don't teach me something that every 45 year old needs today. There's no such thing, right? I'm in a very different place. We acknowledge it for ourselves as adults. We acknowledge it for self, ourselves as employees. Uh, but for some reason, we we don't want to think it's true for, for children. Uh, part of that is because um, it's more convenient uh, in what we're willing to pay for education uh, to have, we're willing to pay for one adult to uh, manage 20 to 30 kids in a classroom for eight hours. Uh, we're not willing to pay for too much more of that as a society than that as a society. So in that context, um, I understand, right? What we're asking teachers to do, um, it, we, we need to ask them something that's relevant. Uh, so standards, as in everybody should do the same thing, is how they've been rolled out. Uh, a, a progression of having an educator be able to lean on a progression of learning that has been created by a body of experts who might know about more about math than I do as a fourth grade teacher, might know about more than English than I might uh, know as a fourth grade teacher, and having a, a, a yardstick to try to understand where my student is, what they can do now, see them there, and be able to guide them on their next step. Hey, look what you're doing. That's great. Here's your next step of development. That decoder for educators can be very powerful, but that's predicated on us allowing students to start where they are and starting from students, not starting from standards. That's why I think uh, Jennifer and I uh, talked very deeply about the word differentiation. At its core, it's a wonderful word. How it's used functionally is that we start from the standard and maybe if you're a little below, I'll ratchet it down or maybe I'll ratchet it up, but we're starting from the standard, not the kid. Um, so very quickly, politically, uh, my answer there is that standards um, have been used, are used, potentially were uh, designed um, as a control mechanism. Um, certainly, we know that from the film Most Likely to Succeed, um, that uh, this style of learning, grade levels and courses, the way they are on this grid, um, was designed and was very innovative when it came out 130 years ago. Uh, you know, first uh, first debuted by the Prussians when they lost their war to have a more fit army. Uh, certainly a wonderful style of education to have privates in the army educated to a, a specific standard. Brought to the United States by Horace Mann, um, championed by Carnegie and Ford uh, to have a minimum standard of people who could work in a steel factory or a paper factory or whatever that factory is. Certainly an amazing innovation at that point to get workers of that standard. Uh, today, standards are used in 
public education, um, to a certain degree in international education. I'm in international education. There's certainly an element of neocolonialism and, and, and imperialism in international education. Where are standards not used? Standards are not used in the most privileged of schools. Harvard is not tying their learning to a body of standards. Philip Exeter, you know, K-12 is not tying their learning to, uh, to a body of standards. Punahou School is not. Uh, they may be referencing great works. They may be referencing big ideas. They may be using terms like Estlers or expected school-wide learning results. Um, but they're certainly not, they're certainly transcending standards. So who's getting standards and uh, who is being freed of that construct? Uh, it really is tied to privilege. And so this is going to bring us to back to Paulo Freire, who you just brought up. Um, and if we talk about the Carnegies and the Ford having these standards to get people to the to, into factories, and now of course we're in a post-industrial world, probably even a post-service world, I'm going to ask whether um, this move towards 21st century skills, and I use it with the greatest amount of irony because I don't know when the 21st century appropriated creativity, because that seems to have been around for a long time. Uh, or critical thinking and collaboration. I don't know if the human uh, species would have survived without collaboration uh, much past uh, prehistory. Um, but is this, because Paulo Freire talks about, you got to be careful when the oppressor tries to be generous, it's falseness, it's inauthentic, you know, it's a lack of authenticity. Are these soft skills, 21st centuries, these things that we want, could it be that it's just more tools of the oppressor in disguise to get kids ready for the post-service economy, that it still isolates us. It still separates us. Because again, Yang Zhao says, why should I be creative if I'm doing another job? Or why should I be collaborative if I love you know, doing my work in my own, in my room? So how do we work with these narratives and, and whether or not that helps us to find liberation? As again, Paulo Freire says. Uh, that's a really complex question, and I think you know I I I'd, I'd like to imagine that Freire would would agree with you first of all that those skills are not just skills of the 21st century. I would agree that was a total misnomer from the beginning, um, but I I do think that they are skills that are increasingly essential for our times. I think I suppose it it you know he talks a lot in his work about education as dialogue as opposed to a banking uh, strategy, right? So we're not we're not educating to try to um, fill kids' heads or even equip them necessarily with a set of skills as we define them, but that we're giving them opportunities to practice those skills in dialogue with each other, with, with the world, with their communities, with the teacher, um, and that that would be what, what shifts it towards something that's not necessarily as much a tool of colonization or of control. Um, now, that said, I am concerned, increasingly concerned, for example, about the, the place of the introvert in student-centered learning. Um, how well are we honoring students, as you said, who prefer, or individuals, humans, who, who prefer to learn alone, who learn better in isolation than in community? Um, you know, I, I do think that we have to keep thinking about that. I think we have to keep paying attention to who's really in the room um, and equip them for the kinds, with the quiet kinds of skills that they will need for their um goals and aspirations and future, right? Um, I also want to mention a really interesting piece of work by a man named Anthony Cody called The Educator and the Oligarch. Um, this book, because it was printed in a, in a private press and because it went against the system so strongly, may not have gotten the attention that it deserved. But what, one of the things that he was doing in that book was really trying to um, 
uh, unravel the way that those standards um, are used in testing and this really massive, massive money-making industry that lies behind the standards. So I would even say, and I think Tony would agree with me that the that meant quite often it appears anyway that the goal of education is actually to make a whole lot of money for people who um, run the textbook companies and the and the you know design the standards and design the exams to test them um, and that there's an error in there as well right um, so I'm, I'm very much a, a believer in the ideas of Paulo Freire I believe that our our liberation comes from our consciousness about ourselves in in and who we are in relation to others. Um, I think that the five C's can, or the four C's can, can help us understand that. And I do think that they're valid skills for our times, um, especially if they're done well, right? I mean, I think they can be taught in a way that does feel like a, 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 a means of control, um, or they can be used in a way that really liberates students and gives them opportunities to, um, to really explore who they are in the world around them and what they want to contribute to that world. So, um, yeah, it's a, it definitely <laughs> very complicated uh, question and an important one when it comes to what our goals are uh, and, and to really seeing the, the children for who they are, right? Um, and really leveraging, uh, I, I appreciate that correction, Capono, maybe it is honoring or celebrating who they really are and letting that be part of, of, of their education. I, um, I appreciate questions that I feel like if I go too far that I could get myself in trouble with. It's fun. It's, it's Thanks, Benjamin. Um, I think that I agree with Jennifer 100%. Um, there, is, there are tons of positives with these uh, skills that have been uh, newly uplifted. Um, I want my son to be creative. I want my son to be a great problem solver. Um, and maybe uh, as a fellow historian, I would say that uh, we should be uh, we should be cynical, skeptical. We should be cautious of accepting gifts, uh, as the uh, we know from uh, you know blankets in the 1700s were very useful to keep Native American people warm. Uh, it was uh, could have been a lovely gift, uh, but certainly uh, there was ulterior motives there. Uh, maybe the problem was not the blankets themselves, but uh, the uh, the germs on the blankets and what they were, how they were being leveraged as a tool in the smallpox epidemic. Um, so if uh, other fellow historians didn't get the reference, um, I think that uh, if we if we look at those skills and we look at the necessity of them, I do think that they are uh, they are very uh, important skills. I had a conversation with Andrew Andrew Watson. He's a, an author, uh, a great thinker. He does a lot of work in brain science. He's got a, a bunch of good books out right now. Um, and the, the, the hierarchy that I articulated earlier of content, discipline-specific skills, concepts, um, and then traits of learning, um, he's articulated through brain science as uh, declarative knowledge, procedural knowledge, schema, and then and then what, Andrew, I asked him, right? So I, I get it. Declarative knowledge might be akin to uh, content knowledge. Um, uh, procedural knowledge might be akin to uh, skills. And schema uh, might be akin to uh, conceptual knowledge. He, he doesn't see the exact crosswalk, but I see crosswalk more. So I was asking him, hey, these, these, these 21st century skills, sees whatever it is, let's just use creativity as, as an example. Cre if creativity is very complex, it's multiple skills uh, and habits de de uh, demonstrated over time, what is the equivalent in brain science? 
And he said, Capone, there's no equivalent. Creativity doesn't exist in brain science as a thing. Neither does critical thinking. Uh, what he said was, um, I, I said, give me an example that makes no sense to me. Um, it still kind of doesn't make any sense, but I'll tell you what he said that kind of made sense. Uh, he said, take, for example, visual art. Um, declarative knowledge, I can you know, name the different types of paintbrushes. I can name the different types of colors. Um, I can name the different uh, skills I need to use. Uh, procedural knowledge, I can apply uh, pressure correctly on a brush to get a correct stroke. Uh, I know how to use color shading uh, uh, and perspective, et cetera. So schema, I can put all of that together and I can paint a lovely picture, copying somebody else's picture. Um, meta schema, you're going to take that to another level of creativity. I can take all of those skills and I can create something of my own. Wonderful. Does that make you a creative guitar player? Does that make you a creative engineer? Does that make you a creative banker? Uh, is, his, is his take on this that I could not argue with? Uh, I still believe that there is some transfer. I do believe that uh, we can transfer critical thinking skills. I've seen it. Um, I've applied it. I've applied uh, language from uh, skills that I've learned in one language to another language. I've applied lessons I've learned in one culture to another culture. I'm constantly triangulating those things. I don't think brain science is capturing the whole story. Uh, but it's an interesting way to think about it. Uh, and especially in, in relation to these um, 21st century skills. So I'll end by this. I completely agree that they are being politicized. I, I really appreciate your answers and, and particularly um, this, this, uh, this willingness to play with these ideas that are incredibly complex and complicated and we don't have the answers and we'll, we'll figure it out, but at least we're pushing the dialogue. I'll, uh, I'll ask one last question and that is, can you please tell us about your book? Well, of course, I, I'm going to actually jump right back for one second to the topic that we were just discussing, if I can, too, and say I have certainly, I understand where your question is coming from when I enter a classroom where a teacher is using those skills to control, right? Um, and that does happen, right? That teachers decide what the collaboration groups should, groups should look like, that teachers decide what's creative and what's not, right? So they certainly can be turned into a modicum of control. Um, I hope that they don't, <laughs> right? That that's not their norm. Okay, so the book. Um, so the landscape model of learning comes from a, a conversation Capono and I had at the People of Color Conference in the United States after uh, running a day-long uh, pre-conference workshop on the intersections between design thinking and intercultural competence and, um, and project-based learning. Um, and that very story I was sharing before about our frustration with the use of the word access instead of success. So what we're trying to do through the landscape model is to build a new way of thinking about something that I think for progressive educators has always, or student-centered educators, is something that they already know. In other words, we have not invented something completely new. We've given a new metaphor and frame and strategies for doing it, right, to build truly inclusive environments. Um, and we have been so we have these three elements to the landscape, which have to do with, uh, as, as Capono was describing, this idea of understanding the ecosystem, what are the previous learning experiences and life experiences and cultural orientations and socioeconomics and all elements of the identities of young people that they bring right into the classroom with them. Understanding that allows us to understand where their starting point is on the landscape. Uh, the second element is that horizon that we referenced and that idea of doing 
goal setting, but co-constructing goals with with young people based on their aspirations, based on their strengths. All of the framework is designed around this idea of, of really focusing in on strengths more than deficits. We interviewed young people who basically told us that um, that at no point in their education did they feel seen for their talents. Right. That's terrifying uh, from our perspective to think that a young person would would not know what their own gifts are because education has never given them um, recognition of those gifts. Um, and so so defining that horizon with them and then um, and then uh, carving that personal pathway toward it, right? And we're not talking about carving 45 different pathways for 45 different kids, but we are talking about making use of pedagogies that really um, that really allow for multiple pathways. So those are things like project-based learning or design thinking pedagogies that where students can be working in groups based on their interests or based on where they're they're trying to go um, and uh, and that we can make those, those pathways personal as opposed to assuming everybody needs to learn exactly the same thing. Um, we are framing a lot of this thinking around concepts like, um, and maybe I can pass this to Capono to explain a little bit more about inclusive prosperity and student protagonism. Yeah, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll hit on uh, uh, protagonism because that's where I wanted to go with this and I'll pass it back to you for inclusive prosperity. Um, the core of the book to me uh, and, and the way that I've been um, sharing about it is really this idea of, of protagonism. Uh, Jennifer shared that, that term with me from her work in South America and Latin America, um, and this idea that the student is the main character of their education. Um, like Jennifer and I have, have uh, said several times in this interview, we had that, that, that gift growing up. Um, I always felt uh, in, in, the, in the positive environments that I was in that I was the main character of my education. Um, and when I ask teachers that, how many of your students feel in their class right now, take a snapshot of uh, 20 minutes into class, how many of them feel like they are the main character of the education that's happening and that they are involved in right now? Uh, most teachers say uh, probably none. Uh, so this idea that we can use the landscape model, use these three elements of understanding the ecosystem, uh, setting a horizon and uh, charting a path uh, is is that, that metaphor really allows us to get at the heart of student-centered learning. How do we place the student at the center of their educational journey, uh, regardless of uh, if that journey leads them to be more creative, better problem solvers, more skilled in math, um, lighting that fire in a child and allowing that fire uh, to take them on their journey across the landscape uh, is the end result. And Jennifer and I have been talking to teachers who picked up the book, who've started to use it this year and have started to write to us on Twitter and email saying, wow, what's happening in my classroom is what well, somebody said, Jennifer, like magic, uh, which kind of touched me um, that just this little tweak uh, helped my students power themselves. I'm no longer dragging them along the landscape. So I'll take the, uh, thank you for that, Capono, too. Yeah, the word protagonismo is very common in Spanish to describe what we're talking about, although I wouldn't say that I've been in a lot of Latin American schools that have necessarily reached what we believe is possible. Um, but protagonism be ends up becoming a synonym for deep student agency um, and the high, you know, the, the, the best levels possible of student agency in the course of their own education, um, so that they come away not feeling like victims, but feeling very much like 
like owners of the experiences that they had. Um, I think the, so the other piece of this is this idea of inclusive prosperity. You know, there's been an evolution in how we describe diversity and inclusivity work over the last couple of decades. We started very much from that term diversity, um, but in a lot of ways, diversity alone just suggested that we had a variety of kinds of students at the table, not necessarily that we knew what to do once they were there, right? Um, and so inclusivity was an attempt to, to talk about what it looks like to include them. But going back to Freire, when we talk about in just inclusion, we are actually still suggesting that the teacher has all the power, right? I've built this experience, I've built this house and I'm inviting you in, right? Um, in which case, there's not a whole lot of ownership, right, for the student because the teacher is the one who has the ability to include or not. And I think that's something that um, special education students, for example, have often felt. Um, and so, you know, and the law tells them they have to, right, include me. Does that mean that I'm actually being honored for who I am and how I think? Maybe, maybe not, right? Um, so we, we were interested in moving beyond the term inclusivity, and we found this term inclusive prosperity, which originally was a term used in, used in economics, specifically in investment banking, has something to do, I can't pr pretend to understand it in that context, but has something to do with the distribution of profits. Um, but we discovered this educator um, who at the time was at the graded school in Brazil who had um, used this term as in reference to education, right? This idea of not just including, but really building toward the individual prosperity of every single student. And that term inclusive prosperity also suggests that when the individual succeeds, the group succeeds as well, right? So there's that sense of the individual and the collective um, in the term that we really, really liked. And so very much, uh, you know, the landscape model is designed to, to focus on that. And even the term student-centered, you know, we ended up with that term in our title and by the chapter by the last chapter of the book um, we had concluded that we wished we had really started from student directed but that a lot of teachers needed to start from student centered for the very same reason right because when we say student centered it suggests that the teacher is centering the whole unit around them but that means again the teacher is the one with the power and control right so so in the in the last chapter we really do open that conversation up and say you know this is what where we think this should be going is not just student centered within the hands of the teacher, but truly student directed where they're the ones making choices about what they need to learn. And they're the ones who are documenting um, and, uh, and articulating their learning and their journey um, and making choices that are relevant to who they are and what they want to do with their lives. And uh, one, one last point on this is that even the word student can be fluid and the, the teacher could be the student at the same time or the adult in the room could be the student. And so it could be a plural, it could be a singular, it could be working across different contexts, different distances. So it, it really is uh, something that that uh, could be cut in different ways. I, I really want to thank you. This has been a, a wonderful conversation. Um, uh, is there any contact info that you'd like to leave or any place where we can get the book or or how how would you like to uh, to make sure that people are, are well aware of all your work? 
Well, um, I manage a website called Principled Learning Strategies, and you can find links to different places to buy the book there. You can find more information about the book and as well as more information about the two of us. Um, principled as in to have principles, not to be a principal. Never occurred to me how problematic that name would be um, when I first chose it, but um, I was playing with words, obviously. Um, and of course, we're, we're both on social media. We're both sharing our work as broadly as we can. Um, I'm I'm doing a lot of article writing right now, and everything that I do is, is uh, ends up housed on, on the Principled Learning website. Um, but Amazon, of course, on a global level, it, the easy answer is take a look on Amazon, look up the landscape model of learning, um, and you should find it there available in print and in uh, electronic form. This has been the Coconut Thinking Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. I'm your host, Benjamin Freud, and we are in collaboration with Intrepid Ed News. As always, check out our website, www.coconut-thinking.design. Check out also our wiser framework on www.wisr.life, a wiser framework to think about um, different ways of approaching learning experiences, be more mindful of how we are intra-acting as nature, as well as moving into more sustainable and degenerative mindsets. Uh, on www.coconut-thinking.design, you'll find resources, articles, podcasts, blogs, um, and hopefully lots of interesting things for you. So leave us your comments, and we look forward to hearing from you soon. In the meantime, bye-bye.